Welcome to Oh God, What Now? The Bigger Bazooka of Politics Podcasts, fully loaded with insights, poor quality jokes and added schadenfreude. I'm Andrew Harrison. On today's show, it's been another really great week for British politics, with former Conservative Party Deputy Chairman 30P Leigh Anderson losing the whip for claiming that Islamists have got control of Sadiq Khan, Suella Braverman saying those pesky Islamists are in charge of Britain, and Liz Truss telling Republicans at CPAC that the end of the West is nigh. Politics in Britain is getting even uglier and more confrontational. After the scenes at the ceasefire vote in the Commons, do we have a serious problem with intimidation in our politics, and what do we do about it? Plus, as the Conservatives head towards oblivion, its far right seem determined to reenact the momentum playbook from Labour's own wilderness years. Why do parties always fail to learn from their predecessors' mistakes? Special shout out to all our brand new Patreon supporters. We've had lots of new backers over the past few weeks and we very much appreciate your support. Podcasting is tough these days now that advertising is not quite what it used to be. So your support is even more important to keep us on the rails. Search Patreon Oh God What Now or follow the link in the show notes to find out how you can put your shoulder to the wheel for the good of the pod. Now let's say hello to our two regulars today. Hello, political commentator, cook, singer, actor and one man Swiss army knife, Alex Andreo. How are you? Hi, Andrew. I'm very well, thank you. I'm glad to hear it. Now, you have two uh, committee appearances for the listeners to keep an eye out for, don't yeah, you? Tomorrow, that's Tuesday. that's the way I roll. <laughs> Absolutely. You've got the, got the hot stuff for the listeners. What, what should we be looking out for? So tomorrow is quite an exciting afternoon in committee terms. Henry Staunton is appearing in front of the Business and Trade Committee. He's the recently sacked post office chair that came to blows with Kemi Badenoch mm-hmm. about what happened and what didn't happen. So I imagine she'll be watching that with some trepidation. Sparks will fly, yes. Well, she doesn't know what he'll say, what emails he'll produce, what conversations he might have recorded. You just don't know. And about an hour later that same afternoon, David Neal, the recently sacked independent borders inspector, is also appearing in front of the Home Affairs Committee. So I imagine cleverly, and Braverman will be watching that one with some interest about what he's got to say, you know, on his 15 suppressed reports that haven't been published. So there'll be a sign over the door saying, have you been sacked? I want to have your say. <laughs> follow, yeah. this, uh, follow this line on the floor. Basically, public exit interviews. You have to Ooh. love it. <laughs> I like this. And hello to journalist, author and woman who has just thrown her vape in the bin, Marie Leconte. How are you, Marie? I'm doing terribly. Thanks for having me. <laughs> <laughs> God help you. Are you scratching like a tomcat with a monkey on your back? Oh, I yeah, really want to kill everyone than myself, but it's fine. It, it, it's a it's a good thing that I'm doing. I, I've been vaping or smoking uh, since I was 13. I'm now 32. A uh, couple of months ago, I had that realization that if I smoke or vape for one more year, then it'll be 20 years, which yeah. feels like a big number. So yeah, and I've decided to try and do it. I've spent an obscene amount of money today on all sorts of fripperies just to try and distract myself. Such um, as? Uh, so I bought a leather jacket. I've got a very fancy soda. Uh, I bought some sort of weird fancy peanut energy bar. I bought three rings. Uh, it's, it's been never-ending. I, I will have no money left by the end of the week. Just, just get a kazoo. It's like a vape, but it makes a noise <laughs> and it uses people. Are like, <laughs> I, am, I am annoying enough as it is. <laughs> you do not want to give me a kazoo. We'll, we'll know that you're arrived. Oh, God, here she comes. <laughs> So 
So it's been a really impressive few days for British politics with the very real question of politicians being intimidated, both in their offices and at home, all brought into focus by the Gaza ceasefire vote in the Commons, all being shoved aside by predictably subtle interventions from Tory headbangers. Lee Anderson lost the whip after claiming that Islamists control Sadiq Khan, and Suella Braverman wrote in The Telegraph that the truth is that the Islamists, the extremists and the anti-Semites are in charge now. We're going to talk about the Commons vote and the issue of intimidation in a minute, but first, this Lee Anderson episode, Alex, he's been a disaster waiting to happen for weeks now, but this was a new step into conspiracy thought for him. What he said was, I don't actually believe that the Islamists have got control of our country, but what I do believe is they've got control of Khan and they've got control of London and they've got control of Starmer as well. There's no evidence for absolutely any of this. Are we getting into American-style truthiness where it doesn't matter whether it's true or not, it's whether the, what the base want to feel is true? Well, I mean, the interesting thing is that he was responding to the comment Braveman had mm. made, that the whole country is under their control, and actually trying to say, well, no, I don't think it's quite so bad. The problem, I guess, for the Tories is that they, they have been perfectly aware of Lee Anderson's character, even before he came over to yeah. their party. He came over to the party under very specific circumstances. Listeners can go and look them up. And certainly they could have been in no doubt as to his views after he told asylum seekers to fuck off home a couple of months ago. Um, and and they all came out with mealy-mouthed nonsense at the time, going, well, I wouldn't use those words, but he's expressing a frustration felt by many. So they are his enablers. And they are his enablers for a reason, because it's useful to them to have someone blowing that particular dog whistle. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, they walked that line for a while. But, you know, the the advantage of dog whistles is that they're meant to be audible only by dogs. <laughs> if it becomes a foghorn and everyone yeah. can hear it, mm. then they may well find that they lose people off the other end of the scale, not because they're so moderate and one-nation Tories that this will horrify them, but actually because of what Starmer said a couple of years ago, that populism demands all of your attention all of the time, and it's fucking exhausting. Yeah. This thing is exhausting. It's a, to most people, I think it becomes a yet another massive row in the Tory party I don't even know what about. But it's like if you're going to build your appeal around what a man in a pub might say, a plain speaking man in a pub, you might end up with the kind of guy that makes you want to leave the pub and go to another pub yeah. because of what he's yelling over the, uh, across I the bar. I have to say I know plenty of, you know, plain speaking men in pubs that are not racist. Yeah. Uh, Oliver Dowden suggested that Anderson could be readmitted if he apologised. And then Anderson doubled down on it in an interview on GB News, which pays him £100,000 a year. He said, if you are wrong, apologising is not a sign of weakness, but a sign of strength. But when you think you're right, you should never apologise because to do so will be a sign of weakness. He doesn't even want to be readmitted, does he, by the sound of this? I suspect he does. But, I mean, it, again, if you look up the events that led to him leaving the Labour Party, what will emerge is that, you know, one of his less admirable qualities among a crowded field of qualities which are hard to admire um, is the fact that he is very stubborn and, um, you know, he throws a strop and he's very impetuous. And so, I, I, I mean, I cannot see a way back for him unless Sunak truly debases himself to a degree that we haven't seen so far. Well, Which Mar is possible. Yeah, Marie, Sunak's inability to state that what Anderson said was Islamophobic 
What does that say about the Prime Minister's position? I mean, he, all, all he could say was they're wrong and unacceptable. Well, I think there's a, like, the first thing is that there's a slightly weird thing about the Conservative Party today where they just really hate the words Islamophobia and Islamophobics. I think mm. Kemi Badenoch yeah. did a very weird tweet. I think Annalisa Dolls made a similar point to you, the Labour MP. And, uh, and yeah, and Kemi Badenoch quote tweeted saying, we use the term anti-Muslim hatred. It makes clear the law protects Muslims. In this country, we have a proud tradition of religious freedom and, capital A-N-D, the freedom to criticise religion. The definition of Islamophobia she uses creates a blasphemy law via the back door if adopted. And it's like, no, no, it what? what? Hang on, what? No, no, but also the tweet kind yeah. of starts making a point about language and then I'm not inside Annalisa's doll's heads. I think, I, I feel pretty confident in saying that is not what she's trying to do. So yeah, A, I think that there is a slight language thing, which I don't fully get, to be honest. Yeah. And I think that someone actually ought to try and get to the bottom of. Um, and then, you know, obviously it means that I think he is quite scared of the right flank of his party because, um, and we've seen there's been numerous stories of kind of leaks of Tory WhatsApp groups and a lot of Tory MPs on the right are very angry that Lee Anderson lost the whip in general. So I think he just doesn't want to annoy them further, which again, should not, you know, if you're prime minister with quite a big majority, you should not have to kind of bend over backwards to accommodate every nutty part of your party. Well, the Telegraph's splash this morning was red wall anger over over Anderson's suspension. Are they really concerned about that? In all these constituencies you've already lost? There's been riots overnight. I, know, yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you read into the piece, they're talking about red wall MPs no, know, rather but, than red wall I know, voters. But, but, but those MPs have to, are supposedly representing what their constituents think. And I can't imagine anybody... But also, yeah, if you look at the current polling, they're not going to be red wall MPs for much no, longer. Yeah. What ninety five percent of them? So yeah, yeah. The phrase "former red wall MP" is going to be soon to be here. former red wall. Soon MP, to be yeah. former red wall MP. Yeah, I mean, five weeks ago, Anderson was deputy chairman of the party, and now he's out of it completely and heckling from the sidelines. If you're Rishi Sunak, and I know you think about this a lot, Marie, you kind of role play in your head the whole time. What are you thinking about this episode? Are you just thinking, please God, roll on anything else? <laughs> what are you thinking? I don't know. I mean, I actually find it really hard to get in, inside Rishi's head because I, I, I find him really hard to predict. But um, I know I suspect that he was actually probably quite quietly relieved when he stopped being deputy chairman of the party. Yes. I, th I think that was definitely a relief. I think losing the whip, I'm not sure, because now the problem is there's going to be the never-ending dance of Richard Tyers going, well, maybe he will join reform, maybe not. And Lee Anderson going, ooh, I'm not saying anything. I'm probably not going to join reform, but who knows? And Farage joining it, etc. And, yeah. and that kind of sucks the oxygen out of anything the government may want to announce because the papers... because Not that they've got anything to announce. <laughs> no, yeah, that's fair. Whenever there's the budget uh, coming up soon. Um, but, but but yeah, no, and I think now what's going to happen is going to be that, ooh, potential defection. Well, I guess it is still defection if you're independent. I'm not sure. Um, so no, I'm not sure Rishi would be sort of immensely pleased, but I wonder if he's maybe, yeah, a, a tiny little bit relieved maybe. Yeah. Alex, um, so what Sololola Bravman wrote was actually, in many respects, worse. I, I agree. Much more incendiary. The, the Islamists, the extremists and the anti-Semites are in charge now. I wasn't aware of this. Perhaps the announcement wasn't put out properly. But it got a lot less play. It was a lot less discussed. It was a lot, it was a, you know, she hasn't lost the whip. Why is that? Is it because it's in the Telegraph? Um, because Anderson is popular but not powerful. Everyone knows he's a bit of a loose cannon. Mm. And so colleagues, I think, are reluctant to die on that particular hill because who knows what he will say in two hours' time, right? Yeah. Mm. You come out and defend Lee Anderson in a full-throated way, and two hours later he might give an, an interview to GB News that, you know, goes much worse. 
I think Braveman, on the contrary, is, is not popular, but she's powerful within mm. the party. She has a coterie and she has an agenda, and there is a scenario where people can imagine her becoming leader. And so I think Sunak moving against her would almost certainly result in enough letters going in to challenge his leadership. So he's not going to do that. Although I as I was thinking about that, I did wonder what the 1922 rules are for someone standing for the le- leadership if they've had the whip withdrawn. You can't stand. Because, you, you, you know, he's not a conservative. So if he threw Braverman out, mm. she couldn't challenge him for she the leadership. She could not. That would she be would a real not, yeah. move. That would. that would be a real move, I'd right? be interested to see that. But So that would you then get the old stalking horse. Just go Braverman and Mordant and Badnock. <laughs> Out. Which is like, remove, <laughs> just remove the whip just from everybody. The, it's like, all... it's a one-person conservative party yeah. with me And it. I vote for me. I vote for me. Um, but looking at both of these things, you know, I you, you try not to be um, alarmist. You try not to exaggerate things. But I find it hard to see the difference between those two quotes that we talked about from Braverman and Anderson and actual Enoch Powell Rivers of Blood. I find it very hard. I would go further and say that Enoch Powell was talking about a future hypothetical yeah. when he said, if this situation continues, I fear this will happen. She's, she's saying now. Yes. Yeah. She's saying, you know, the and, and I just, I don't understand the audience for that. I mean, other people who haven't been to London for so long that they genuinely believe there is outside their idyllic, sort of town or village, there is literally some sort of that. hellscape, so, yeah. you know, in which Sharia law... And I was just going to say, because I know like having quite a lot of friends who didn't grow up in London, they, they'll they say that, not necessarily their parents, but kind of, you know, wider family of people they know back, back home, wherever that may be, and not London would occasionally say, oh, God, London, you know, or like from what I've heard, you know, like you just can't go yeah. anymore, et cetera. Like people, some people do sincerely seem to believe that. Like certainly not everyone outside London, but I think it, it has worked on, I think, a class of people who maybe like a bit older, spend a lot of time on Facebook, et cetera. Mm. Um, I do think there's a constituency now for that, which is quite scary because it's, yeah. yeah, obviously not the case. I think um, there is a constituency for that. It's general fear of cities. And we've talked about this a lot on the podcast over the years, yeah. that kind of, you know, suburban horror and rural horror of the city. But I also think there's another the constituency of people who would like to believe that it's true because yeah. it makes sense to their politics and you see you do see it across particularly facebook the old person social network mm. you will see you know particularly i follow Sadiq khan's um facebook very closely every single post is followed by well your city is just full of knife crime isn't it everybody in london gets murdered every single day it's impossible to live in london and you do a little mm. quick click and it's like you live in Norwich, you live in, you know, Burnley, you live in wherever. And I refuse to believe that none of these guys, have, and it's usually blokes, have never been to London. This is a small country. You can, you know, you're seldom more than about five or six hours away from London if you want to come here. Mm. And yet there is a, there's like a need and a belief mm. that it's got to be like that because mm. that sort of makes sense. But isn't it kind politics. of a form of schadenfreude? Of people who don't like London anyone, they're like, eh, you know, yeah. London, stupid big city with their immigrants. Fine, well, good that it's going terribly. I think I think they're kind of, you know, I, I'm sure, yeah, like there's an element of, yeah, Schadenfreude. I, I, th- I think they'd have more uh, 
uh, you'd have a better run of it if they criticise London on the fact that it's the home of the eight pound pint, mm. which is something most of us could identify with a bit more, bit more oh, closely. Spent twenty three quid on a round of three drinks recently. God, but they, they could, they'd hate that on Facebook. London has fallen. Should we talk about the six five and the background to this? This is the sort of yep. has now retreated yep. into the background. Lindsay Hoyle found himself in incredibly hot water after making a call on the SNP's bill, citing the threat to politicians and his handling of it. That's almost been lost in the kind of fog of parliamentary war. Alex, can you tell us, give us, give us the praise on exactly what happened? First. Okay, all right. Um, so opposition days are a chance for an opposition party to schedule the business it wants in parliament, basically. The SNP laid down a motion on a ceasefire um, in Gaza. They did so in part absolutely on principle, and their position on Gaza has been clear and wavering and solid from day one, but also in part absolutely because it would make life very difficult for the Labour Party. Labour said quite publicly and quite quickly that it would amend that motion so that their MPs could vote for the amended motion and worked very hard to find a wording that everyone could agree on. This went on really over Thursday and Friday and part of Saturday. Now, the government, who often abstains from such motions uh, and who had not shown any interest in this up to that point, seeing that Labour were edging towards a solution, decided to put down their own amendment, making it unlikely that the Labour amendment would be called by the Speaker, since usually only one is, and government has dibs, basically. The Speaker then decided, I think quite rightly in my view, to give the House a chance to debate all three motions, right? Which was controversial, but would have been okay. The Tories then withdrew from proceedings altogether, meaning that because of the way the mechanics work, the Labour motion would be voted on first and would succeed because they had no numbers. So the the SNP would never get a chance to vote on its own motion unamended, even though it was its own opposition day, right? And they were really, quite rightly, pissed off at that. Okay. That's that's the mechanics of what happened. Okay. And Marie, how do we get from there to the speaker must go? Oh, God. Well, um, I think it, we reached this sort of weird and holy alliance of Tory MPs who got incredibly angry, but also... SNP MPs were incredibly angry, and it was really shocking. So I watched it at the time on Parliament Live. Like, there was the proper and some kind of, of the Labour left. So and some of yeah, that's true actually. Mm-hmm. We you know, but the wall of noise in the chamber of the House of Commons was incredible. Like people, I would say, sounded angrier than they did even at the height of the Brexit kind of chaos. Is mm-hmm. yeah, several corners uh, of Parliament accused Lindsay Hoyle of being unacceptably biased, basically in favour of the Labour Party because he. Uh, was a Labour MP, was elected as a Labour MP. Um, but then he kind of came back to the chamber and explained that the, the reason he, he decided to buy the Labour amendment uh, was because there'd been some worries in Labour corners about threats to Labour MPs. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and so, so he kind of thought that actually giving MPs the widest possible range of yeah. options to vote on would actually help um, c- kind of stop those threats. So kind of, you know, stop some of the online fury. Um, a lot of Tory NSNP MPs, I think, did not buy that at all. Uh, and then I think as the situation unfolded as well in the days that kind of followed, some people said, hang on, but actually even if he genuinely that we are to take him at his word and he just did that out of concern for the physical safety of MPs, 
then surely that's quite worrying and bad as well because yeah. Parliament should not bow to threats of violence. Um, and I think it's kind of still rolling along. Uh, it's looking now like I think Lindsay Hoyle is safe as uh, leader of the House of Commons, um, but he's definitely in the last chance saloon now, I would say. And I think he's lost the confidence of quite a lot of SNP and Tory MPs. Um, right. So yes, it's been a mess. Sounds great. And, and the irony, of course, is that like it is highly unlikely that anything that happens in the House of Commons is going to influence whether there is or is not a ceasefire. Yeah, well, especially kind of different motions that have broadly similar wording mm. and, you know, where the devil is in the details. Like, it's not even like the, you know, SNP and Labour, for example, yeah. uh, amendments were hugely different. Yeah. I mean, it, the, the the background of sort of threat and, and intimidation that we, we talked about there is, is real and it's not mm. just around, you know... Don't want to pretend that everybody who's who's looking for a ceasefire is involved in political intimidation. Obviously, they aren't. But we've seen in recent weeks, we've seen the North London Conservative MP Mike Freer quitting after death threats and an arson attack. Mm. We've seen Palestine protesters descending on Tobias Elwood's home. Mm. In re, in more <clears throat> in a in a wider t- uh, timescale, we've seen death threats to scores of MPs. They're very common. Naz Shah, Jess Phillips, Chris Bryant have all received death threats, and of course, the murders of Joe Cox by a neo-Nazi and David Amos by an Islamist. So we do, you know, this this is happening. If we have a serious problem with the politically violent culture in the UK, are we, are we taking this seriously enough and are we doing the right things about it? So I think the first problem, slash the first step, is that actually MPs have not really been talking about this publicly until recently. So I think yeah. from the outside, people seem to think that actually that's just kind of started again, like in the past, let's say, six months, when I think even before the pandemic, to an extent, like that's definitely stuff I'd heard. So, and, and I'm sure I've mentioned some of that on previous podcasts here, but I remember talking to a female MP once who she was explaining that, because I was oh my God, but you know, do you still report everything to the police? And she said, oh, oh God, like if my staff reported every single death threat I received uh, to the police, we would have no time to do anything else. So we've completely stopped. Um, I talked to a special advisor once who uh, talked me through a a serious attempt on the life of uh, his boss, who was a secretary of state at the time. And again, I think that the thing is, like for quite a long time, these MPs did not want to draw attention to that stuff because they worried about copycats, because they did not want to be seen to be complaining, because, you know, for for a number of reasons. I think... I, I sort of get why they were doing it, but also it a it does mean that now it looks kind of weird that suddenly the dam has kind of burst and everyone's going oh no actually this has been a big problem yeah. for a while which feels a bit overwhelming. Uh, but b the problem again like you know if we're not talking about it then that means that we can't properly address it or a try to understand why it's happened and b try to actively solve it. I I guess I disagree with a tiny part of that, which mm. is I think that it's okay for the House of Commons to alter process mm. in you know to account for security and no one suggested these people were going to vote differently to what they thought mm. what was going on is that they weren't given the option to vote for what they thought which meant that they would show on the role as abstaining mm. and then that is weaponized and i think all major parties are guilty of yeah. doing that of going aha you didn't vote on the welfare bill mm. therefore you love the two-child cap or whatever. Mm. And the most sensible suggestion that I heard is that next to your voting record, you should be allowed to enter like a two-sentence summary Mm. of why you abstained. Like, I wasn't in parliament that day. You know, Mm. I was sick. Or, you know, I couldn't support this clause 
of mm. that thing. And that was a deal breaker for me, mm. rather than just show us voting against or abstaining. I think the problem is that this is a topic I'm actually uh, really interested in. I wrote a big piece on it for GQ like, in 2018 or something. Um, I, I think there's actually a massive problem with how we record votes in Parliament. But the problem is there's no easy solution. So I think especially opposition day debates have always been interesting because, let's be honest, they don't achieve a lot. And quite often mm-hmm. there will be like, well, you know, the, the Labour Party votes uh, in favour of like chocolates and hugs with your grandma. Uh, but the evil Tories actually hate chocolates and hugs with your mm-hmm. grandma because, you know, um, and then it's always been that. And it's all, you know, it's very often been votes that don't really matter. But, you know, that the moment that websites like um, They Work For You started becoming popular, then suddenly all votes kind of started looking equal. So if you all look, you know, at, let's say that, how did your MP vote on this? You will see, well, your MP really hates your grandmother specifically and also chocolate. Yeah. That, that, that feels sort of massive. But again, the you know, I, I think solving this by adding context, I agree, would help to an extent, but I'm not sure you could do that with every single voter, every single thing. That it, it would just take up so many, I think, Jenny, so many resources and so much time for every single division, basically. It is really um, interesting. You, they, they work for you because it's easy to take that stuff out of context, isn't it? The number of times when, yeah. you know, in, we've often said on this podcast that this particular MP, well, they might be a, they might be a Brexiter, but they're reasonable on this and somebody will pop up. There's a, well, they, they voted in favour, as you say, of the, of the two mm. child cap or they voted in favour of this mm. one. Yeah, they did because they're a Conservative MP, and it would have been a three-line whip. It's not. Yeah. A, it's not. A, it's not a, a personal reflection on their mm. their character. MPs are, are always voting for things they don't personally support because they're mm. members of political parties and they're there on the manifesto. I mean, and there's an argument that they shouldn't be doing that, mm. but that's an argument about the the way the whipping system operates and about the yeah. you know yeah. the way in which basically the executive has captured the legislature. Mm. Yeah. But it also, I think, fully depends. And, and, and again, you can't really see that from their work for you. Did someone vote with the government on something where it was a three-line whip and then maybe something about the budget? You know, So you really have to vote for it, otherwise you will lose the whip and that'll be that. Or did they vote with the government when it was a one-line whip or like a free vote, etc.? And I interviewed at the time the guy who runs, uh, who, I don't know if he still does, but at the time ran... Uh, they work for you. And he was really interesting, but also a bit frustrated because he said, you know, everyone, like all of because I'd interviewed an MP as well, and he was like, well, all these MPs are really angry with us and they don't like our work and they're really resentful of the abuse they're getting, etc., from our website. But also... They could just ask Parliament to make that stuff really like available and accessible. Like yeah. we only did it because parla- the Parliament website didn't. Like yeah. we just found yeah, yeah, a yeah. gap in the market. <clears throat> make people do it. You know, make Parliament do it themselves. And I, I, I totally get his thing. And again, was it like five years on, six years on? They still not done it. Yeah. Just to bring ourselves out of, out of Westminster again for a bit, I want to be clear that we're not just sort of dunking on the Palestine process here. There's, mm. there's a lot of this stuff across the spread of politics. Oh, absolutely. Particularly yeah. last week, members of Just Stop Oil said they're going to start protesting at MPs' homes. Uh, you know, in the past couple of years, we've seen anti-vax protesters hounding Keir Starmer down the street, mm. you know, riots in Nosley against asylum seekers a, a year ago. They kind of, the idea that protest goes beyond just lobbying your MP and talking to them. People think it's legitimate to turn up at an office, harass, throw paint and all the rest of it. Um, but do you think that the, the the Gaza protests in particular get attention, especially from the conservative media, because it's attached to race? Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, I, I think that that's the short answer and I'm not sure I have a much longer one. I think it, it is partially a politically motivated thing. Um you know, in the way that even during the Brexit years, you had some, you know, like proper sort of hard Brexit nutters who would definitely threaten kind of like Remainer mm. MPs, soft Brexit MPs, etc. They didn't talk about it in that way at the time. So I do think it is racialized. It's also about the fact that, 
It's also about the argument itself. So, you know, these are all people who probably support the actions of the Israeli government, even at the moment in Gaza. Mm. So, so yeah, no, I, I think it's not one of those like very complex issues. It seems to me quite obvious that they've just found a handy way to go, oh, well, look, you know, the, the evil Muslims doing all this, uh, mm. which is obviously, again, not the case because intimidation of MPs and threats have been a problem for years now. Mm. Alex, just to, to wrap this up, um, there's a review uh, set up by the government, head, headed by Lord Woodcock, into political violence. And it's expected, amongst other things, to recommend extending a thing called expedited public space protection orders, mm. right, which are currently used only to break up protests outside schools and vaccination clinics. And I, I think, is it abortion clinics as well? Yeah. I think there's an aspect of it there. And the idea is to expand this to include parliaments, MPs' offices and council buildings. I don't know whether it includes the homes of MPs. I mean, do we need this? We've already had quite a lot of restriction of protest under this government. I mean, I think it will make it quite difficult to protest at all and might have the opposite effect. It might actually encourage people to sort of do guerrilla protests. Yeah. Because, I mean, if, if you feel strongly about an issue and you can't protest outside Parliament or outside the MP's surgery, hmm. um, I mean, where where can you protest? And the overwhelming... Well, I mean, do you do you just find a quiet spot yeah. in the middle of a field somewhere and hold up a sign and yeah. hope someone notices? I mean, in my view, it should be about the nature and tone of the protest. It mustn't mm. cross into intimidation. Yeah. You know, standing outside your MP's surgery, holding up a sign saying, "I, you know, I think you're wrong on X." Mm. I don't think is. I, I think that should be perfectly allowed yeah. and must be allowed in a democracy. Yeah. Um, it, while at the same time, even you could be nowhere near the, the MP geographically, and we have mm. seen that, but be messaging them with such persistence and menace that the threat becomes very real. So I think focusing on geography seems to me their own focus. Now, time to choose our hero and villain of the week. Who is this week's George Michael commemorative Royal Mint coin coming out this week? And who is its Brexit 50p, never seen in the wild since they were supposedly <laughs> released in 2020? Um, Marie, who is your hero? Uh, it is Baroness Vasey, the uh, Tory oh, uh, player. Punt. Who? Mm. Well, yes, who I think, like, but Jenny sort of, like, I feel like week in, week out, year in, year out for many years now has been trying to say that the Tories do have an Islamophobia problem and that they will not be able to deal with it unless they actually, A, admit that it's there and B, decide to actually tackle it head on. And I feel like no one ever really listens to her inside the party, but she's still not stopped. And she's made herself yeah. as complete pariah in her party and she's still, every single time, going, come on! Which, yeah, I feel like you've got to really respect that. I'm a big fan. I also really like her accent. Oh. We need more accents like that on the yeah, radio. it is a good on, accent, on yeah. Who's your villain? Uh, my villain is slightly more nebulous. Uh, it is basically everyone who's prevented Shamaya Begum from coming back to Britain. Mm -hmm. That I think that, I mean, I, I think there's two sides to this. The first one being that, you know, she actually uh, joined ISIS and left Britain when she was 15. She was a child and she was effectively groomed. And I think it's unfair to kind of uh, treat the case as if she'd been an adult at the time. But the second thing, which I think is the main one, even if you disagree with this, even if you think she's not changed, etc., she was a British citizen. She's Britain's problem. And I think yes. just going in, I think I'll, I'll nick shamelessly um, 
comedian Alex Keeley's joke that was really good because he went, well, you know, when Harold Shipman was found guilty, like everyone agreed that was horrible. No one decided that that made him suddenly Portuguese, (laughs) (laughs) which I really liked. And and I think that, you know, I think it sets a very dangerous precedent, but it's also just, again, your citizens are your problem. She is a British citizen who should be punished by Britain if she's done Mm. wrong. Um, I also find it really interesting that it's often people who get very, very angry about uh, young girls being groomed. Suddenly, I'm not very interested in this young girl who was groomed and made yeah. to do yeah. terrible things. That's quite telling, isn't it? it because sounds... there is a there's a there's a notable difference yeah. between the girls they get upset about and the girls they don't get upset Can't about. Can't put my finger on it. Yeah. Um yeah, and I don't think it makes you a fan of Shumima Begum and what she did mm. to that think she that she belongs in prison. That she should be, be treated <laughs> according <laughs> to the law in the UK yeah. and not just kind yeah, of yeah. put into uh, statuslessness. Mm. Uh Alex, who's your hero? So my hero is Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. Um just unexpectedly this week, I just had a surge. I had a surge of sympathy for him because I think he's basically being told by the entire world, it seems, that you're too old, just go away and die now. Mm. And I think that's actually utterly disgusting and ageist. Mm. Actually, he's been a pretty decent president. And I was looking the other day at some clips of like George W. Bush and the sort of speeches he made and the faux pas he made and the nonsense he said. And there's no doubt in my mind that if he had been Joe Biden's age, mm-hmm. everyone would be saying he's gaga. Mm-hmm. You know, and he was a terrible president. I just think it must be so immensely difficult for you sitting there as an older person, knowing that you've actually done a pretty decent job. I mean, if you Mm. fed every American metric into a machine, Mm. Joe Biden would come out as a really good president. While at the very self-same time, the guy you will probably be up against in the election is driveling on with non sequiturs, nonsense, rubbish, mad grandson. three or four years younger than you, but somehow pretends he's a teenager. And I... It's ludicrous. It's ludicrous. I mean, I think Joe Biden, a hundred years ago, would be a celebrated American president when they only had to, like, make one speech a year and send statements to a newspaper. In front of 300 people, yeah. When you said Joe Biden, Marie immediately started sniggering, and I know why this is, because of the revelations in the biography, that the (laughs) the secret... Am I that predictable? Yeah, it's written all over (laughs) your face that... um, uh, that's the revelations in the biography that the secrets of Joe and Jill's long marriage is they're having loads of great sex all the time. Legend. Diamond yeah. Joe and Jill are he's at it like knives. He's my hero for that too. Yeah, so, I'm happy for that. He's yeah. my hero yeah. for that too. Well, apparently Joe Biden was ranked 14th out of 46 in the presidential greatness survey this year and Trump came at the very bottom. So there you go. <laughs> there you go. Who's your villain? So my villain this week is Aaron Banks because he has jumped into the debate we were just talking about, um, tweeting, quote tweeting Robert Buckland in a particularly egregious example, going, it's about time you people started taking responsibility for the utter mess you have left. (laughs) And I just thought, what? (laughs) Am I having a stroke? What is going on? I mean, He's the guy that funded the queue of migrants poster that was unveiled the day Joe Cox was assassinated. 
And he's now standing from a great height and going, oh, you've really debased our politics. And I just thought, what? What is happening? But this is part of the entire generation of politicians and, and political actors who are kind of metaphorically in the banana costume saying, yeah. we're all trying to find the guy who's, who's responsible for yeah, this. exactly. He is exactly. among them. Um, okay, well, my judgment is about to come in and I'm afraid it's bad news for Alex because it's a clean sweep. For uh, it's always a clean sweep for whoever is opposite me. I don't no, think he's given. Whining. I don't think he's given me one. You will really? get. Yes, yeah. I have. I must have done. Literally never. So never. we are. It's Baroness Farsi, mm. and it is the masked ranks of the Shamima Begum um, mm. grand conspiracy. You'll have your moment one day, Alex. I mean, Joe Biden's not going anywhere. All the people. who... <laughs> I mean, instead of Aaron Banks, that's how much he fucking he's hates He's just me. a given. He's just a given. <laughs> now, how big is your bazooka? If you're a conservative, <laughs> shut up. Hello. If you're a conservative, <laughs> Liz Truss thinks it's not big enough. Unless conservatives become more active in speaking out, Western civilization is doomed. She calmly told the Republican CPAC gathering in Maryland at a fringe event where The Guardian reported that the UK's shortest serving prime minister was greeted by gentle applause and dozens of empty seats. Truss has many fans in the Tory press and parliamentary party, though, and the Conservatives seem to be preparing for opposition by drawing the same conclusion that Labour did in 2015 and 2017. That thing that voters say they don't want, let's give them more of it. <laughs> so true. Why do defeated parties keep drawing exactly the wrong conclusions from their defeats? And does it always take at least one full electoral cycle for them to come back to life and back to reality? Uh, Marie, here's, here's a list of the similarities between the Conservatives in 2024 and Labour back in 2015, 2017. So what do you think of this? One. Completely run by entryists who want to completely transform the party. Momentum in the past and now Tufton Street. Two, any sense of where public opinion is at is shouted down by outriders in the press. Mm. Used to be the Canary and Squawk Box, now it's the uh, Spectator and Telegraph. Three, convinced that there's a previously unmotivated block of voters that can be activated if you shout at them loud enough. Mm. That's true. And four, completely conspiracy-minded. So I call complete, like complete and throw bullshit on one because okay. Stuffed in the Street think tanks have been around for decades mm -hmm. and, and they've always have been they some... Have they been influential, influential theory now? Well, and and yeah. also oh, momentum is a grassroots movement. Whatever yeah. you okay. say about it, yeah. it, you know, it is a grassroots movement. It's not some no, I think shadily funded Three out of four ain't bad, but yeah, yeah definitely okay. not one. Um, okay. But yeah. Yeah, so... Not entirely down to the think tanks, but mm. but dissent can be shouted down by these kind of outriders in the press. Mm. Absolutely believe that there's mythical voters out there who can be motivated and completely conspiracy-minded. Yeah. But, but so I think what's interesting about it is that it, it is, I think, probably quite normal and, dare I say, even slightly healthy for a party to go through that stage when they get into opposition, especially after having spent quite a lot of time in power. Um, you know, I, I kind of see it as akin to once you break up with someone or you get dumped, etc. You, you may have a time of going, well, you know, that dish that they said was horrible. I'm going to eat it seven times in a row because right. I'm free now. And you're going to wear like horrible clothes because you're like, well, those shoes, which everyone, you know, say they're ridiculous. I'm going to wear, etc. So, so I think that's kind of there's a normal reverting back to the mean because you spend time in government and. By definition, spending time in government means not being able to do everything you want to do, seeing a lot of your better ideas, quote unquote, kind of collapse when they crash with reality and essentially having to negotiate with the public 
endlessly. I think that's what you do mm. when you're leading a country. So I think once you get into opposition, there is a nearly childish or childlike thing of going, oh, finally, we can just be entirely yeah. ourselves again. <laughs> and just eat ice um, cream all day. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. So, so I think I think that's normal. I think what's fascinating about the Conservative is that they're doing it while still in government. <laughs> and it's a bit yeah. like, guy, guy, hello, hello, we're still here. That we're still, <laughs> we can see you. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. um, so I think that, that that's what I find very odd about that. Yeah, getting your midlife crisis in early, that kind of thing. Well, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, do you think we're about to enter the age of conservamentum? So I don't think we're going to call it that. No, uh, of course not. Like, it's not enough. But, yeah. You've really demonstrated the extent to which well, it does not roll off the tongue. <laughs> yeah. Oh, the Maybe popcorns. popcorns yeah. are it. Yeah. Um, well, I think we're, we're already in there. I, again, and I think um, I, I've said a version of this, I think, on every podcast for the past few months. And I know it's getting boring, but it, it does slightly depend on who's left over after the next election, the Parliamentary Conservative Party, and also who gets in. Because uh, mm. that, that's still, I think, kind of the mystery box. But yes, no, I, I suspect that we will get a few a few solid years of fun. Yeah. Um, I mean, d- define fun, but yeah. Now, given that it seems that every single party does this when they lose, mm. you would expect somebody along the line to finally learn the lesson. Why aren't the Conservatives learning from what happened to Labour post 2015? They retreat into their comfort zone, they wrap the comfort blanket around themselves. It's a disaster. And then it's a long old haul back. No, because I, I think, again, like like I was saying earlier, I think it, it's not the least healthy thing in the world to have that kind of human impulse. Also, I think it's just parties are really, um, more Labour than the Tories, uh, let's say, but are broadly democratic organisations. I think party members kind of want to have their party back. Again, as I was saying earlier, like yeah. they're really tired after a spell in government of having to share their people with the public and having to be like, oh, well, we can't <laughs> do all those things we would want to do because the stupid public don't want to. So then it's like, no, we're back. So it is usually driven by the members. Yeah. But yeah, I don't think it's bad for them to get it out of their system. <laughs> um, no, no, because when you look at every study, you know, like, yeah. it, there's been lots of really interesting work done on that. So if you compare where the public is on certain I don't know, certain issues, or like even, let's say, Labour voters, so where they are on a certain issue, Labour MPs and Labour members, they're all in very different spaces yeah. and exactly the same for Tory sort of like MPs, members and public and voters. Um, so, yeah, so I think when you're in government, you've got to pretend all of this is a happy family, but then there's just that you've got to, you've got to be quite quick, I think, afterwards going, cool, got that out of the system, we're, we're back now. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm I'm old enough to whenever I hear the phrase, well, we really need to start listening to the members. I think, oh God, please don't do that. Mm. But also, I think never finally it. as well. I do think that, and then that's been proven anyway. Like the public, if the public votes a party out, they don't really want to hear about them again for at least a couple of years. So use mm. the couple of years to decompress. It's fine. Go but wild. yeah, but just it's going to be a couple of years, not more than that. Alex, but when we talk about this before the podcast, you're at pain. It's quite right to say let's not hang all of this on momentum, but. You know, we've seen this happen before on lots yeah, yeah. of governments. You know, it's, you know, because uh, there is a parallel, but yeah. it's not as narrow as that. I mean, if one looks at the convulsions in the Labour Party after their first and second defeat to Thatcher or their Tory, the Tory party after their first and second defeat to Blair, it just seems a pretty common feature. And by the way, we all do quite a lot. I mean, we did a lot of creative arithmetic mm. in the last six mm. or seven years yeah. to say, this is why, you know, this is why Brexit the Brexit didn't really vote happen. didn't really yes. happen. You know, we all do that because I think we live in pretty uniform pockets of opinion and which are rarely pierced. And so when suddenly we see in front of us evidence that loads of people think differently, mm. we try to rationalize it. We try to get out of that dysphoria. 
Um, and it's a psychological defense. And, and mm. so to answer your question, that's why parties don't learn from other parties, because it's not a rational reaction. It's an emotional one. And it's interesting how they get out of it, because mm. you also see that as a pattern every single time Attlee, mm. Thatcher, Blair, Cameron, Starmer. What do they have in common? They have in common a, a basic strategic decision to speak to people outside the group of people who already agree with them. And that is what you see again yeah. and again and again. The moment a party turns the other way and, and mm. starts going, let's really shout together with the people who agree with us, mm. that, yeah. that there lies electoral oblivion, I'm afraid. Well, I was trying to sort of fit it into the stages of grief, you know, sort of <laughs> denial and bargaining and acceptance. And at the moment, there seems to be almost a lust for this kind of disaster mm. amongst the Conservatives. I mean, we talked about the doom columnists last week. Yeah. Who were essentially saying, Trussism failed, Brexit failed, therefore Britain deserves all it gets. Mm. This country is shit and it's going to fall to pieces and it's going to be all our own fault. But which I think we got on the left as well. Where, yeah. Well, you didn't want Corbyn, guess everything's going to shit forever yeah. now. And, and is that all right? Getting, <laughs> still getting that, right? Yeah, was, yeah. You could have had this, but it's all your own bloody fault. But catastrophism. You know, like Truss saying, unless you do what's in my crazy book, then literally the West is doomed. Yeah. Mm. There's a market for that in, in America. There's a media network. There's a media structure. There's a kind of conceptual framework. It's balmy, but it's real. Surely there isn't a market for that here, though. But British people, are, they're not that interested in politics. Yeah, the, you'd be surprised, I think. I mean, I guess this is where it's slightly different, I think, for the left and the right. Because I think the right, not just here, but all around the world, is experiencing a profound crisis of ideology, actually. We see it in some countries more pronounced, in others less so. But really, since the financial crisis and austerity compounded by the pandemic and, you know, energy uh, prices skyrocketing, states have been forced to do profoundly uncapitalist things step in and save the banks, yeah. put people on furlough, top up your energy bill if you can't afford it. I mean, this is stuff that a government like Thatcher's would have considered them anathema. Mm. And I think now, if we saw the kind of house repossessions that we saw in 1980 or 1990 after those two recessions, I think the political pressure on the government to step in and do something to stop people from losing their homes in their millions would be overwhelming, difficult for conservatives all around the world because their basic tenet that we just let shit happen and there are winners and there are losers and that's as it should be, oh. it really is undermined at a really basic level right now because if you get enough losers because of something else going on, a pandemic, a war, whatever, oh. then People demand that government step in. Yeah, it's kind of hard to apply market Darwinism to a situation where the result of failure is millions of dead people. Yeah, mm. you know, it's so you can just about wear it if it's yeah. an, if it's an empty high street, but like you lose two thirds of your family. And is a you tough extend sell. that to invite the environmental crisis that also needs muscular state action, and yeah. not only that coordinated at an international level. And this idea of the statist free market capitalist, it just becomes obsolete. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
What do we think about the kind of this sort of interesting idea advanced by Gavin Barwell about about trust, but you can extend it to to the wider conservative world? The, the idea that she can only deal with the consequences of obvious massive failure on an historic scale mm. by kind of retreating into a comfort zone and saying like it didn't happen that way. It was dark forces changed it. We were never really in charge. It's well, yeah. What I think, you know, that's something, and that that applies, I think, not just to list trust, but to conservatives more broadly. Um, as was noted, I believe before even the referendum, some politicians said, "Careful, if you lose Brussels, who are you going to blame everything yeah. on?" And I think that's, you know, that's genuinely like what's happening. Which I mean, is the answer, apparently. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I, I'm very much play, playing to the audience here. But but I do think that Brexit is one of the main reasons why they do that because they can no longer go, well, Juncker or whoever yeah. is in charge in Brussels. Like, you know, we would be doing so well if it weren't for the EU. So I think that that's a massive part of it. I think Truss is just a spectacularly weird woman. Like, mm. I don't think anything can be extrapolated from the way she functions. I think a lot of, uh, especially conservative MPs who've been, you know, at various levels over the past decade, just don't really like being politicians. I think, you know, that they, they don't like the reality of it. They don't yeah. like the limitations of being ministers, of being, you know, whatever, even being backbenchers, etc. I, I do think a lot of it is just frustration, which I think so I didn't mention during the Gaza bit. But a thing which I've not, I mean, I did a column on, but um, um, I think part of the reason why MPs were so angry is because uh, they're really frustrated on every side of the house. Everyone is frustrated. They've not done really anything meaningful in so long. They're not going to get much done before the election. Is yeah. going to shamelessly nick a friend's things. So I my. Uh, friend I was talking about said the Gaza thing afterwards and he was like oh yeah like MPs are currently behaving like small children who've been in the car for too long and it's like yeah, that point yeah, where yeah. there's nothing to be done they're going to be crankier everything yeah. and I think it's partially that, partially that as well The danger with doing that for psychological reasons and catharsis is that you can overshoot and if there is another pretender that's fishing in the same voting pool mm. like there was with Syriza in Greece I mean Pasok mm. went from 44% in the 2009 election to 4.8% six years later. Mm. So it happens mm. if you're in a two-party system and there's an emerging party that kind of is eyeing your, the same voters, mm. which reform is, mm. yeah. the, the Tory party needs to be really careful about trying to sort of fight on reforms turf mm. this it, it can turn out really bad oh, yeah party. very yeah. similar i think in france as well i think you're you, you are oh, actually yes, speaking you know i don't want to brag but you are speaking to one of the seven people who voted for benoit Mont back in 2017 <laughs> so uh <laughs> and we could we don't even have time to talk about the canadian conservatives in 1993 yeah, who went right. from 156 seats to two <laughs> which is, and I kind of dream about the destruction of the Conservative Party, and then I kind of think, yeah, but what's going to come next? Well, exactly. So, That's know, the thing. Be careful what you wish yeah, for. Yeah, Richard Ty's recruiting everybody. That's so. his mission. He just wants to destroy the Conservative Party completely. He yeah. really, really, really hates it. More yeah. than Labour, I think. Yeah. yeah. I think we should all be joining the Conservative Party to try and bring it back to its senses. I think it's in all our interest to have a centre-right party somewhere in our political so, yeah, you first. Somewhere out there, <laughs> somewhere out there, a listener is going. I knew he was a Tory. I knew it. <laughs> We've reached the end of the show, so it's time for escape routes. Which cultural caves have we been spelunking into this week? 
Marie, what is your escape route? I mean, to be fair, I've mostly been thinking about Dune 2. I've not even seen it yet, but oh, I'm just so God, sad. I bought my tickets weeks ago. I'm going on Sunday. I can't wait. I'm going by myself because I think it's quite a serious thing. Mm. Then I, I'll go again with some friends, but the first time is by myself because it's basically a religious experience. Are you going to stand on a cherry shot? What dib? <laughs> the sandworm comes. I, I, I will... Probably. Yeah, no, I went to watch the first one again. The Prince Charles Cinema in Soho showed it again. So I went to watch it again a few weeks ago. Um, but no, in, in the meantime, I've actually I've been re-watching Veep. Um, and Veep is just so good. And I think I know it was really well watched at the time, but if people haven't watched it, it's kind of like the American thick of it. But it, it, it is somehow the best, I think, of British TV and American TV. So it's kind of like as funny as the thick of it, but there's still more depth, I think, to the characters and kind of and a proper dramatic arc as well. I would say that the... Season, the series finale is probably the best series finale of any series I've watched. It's absolutely remarkable television. It's incredible how it goes from being like, haha, the you know, funny thing about American politics to going, oh God, that's a gut punch. Yeah. Um, so yes, no, watch Veep, watch Dune 2. At the same time. Yes. Alex, what's your escape route? Veep is great, by the way. Mm. And and also, uh, uh, I went last uh, weekend to see The Motive and the Queue based on Seth's recommendation Ooh, yes. a few weeks mm. ago, and it was absolutely uh, brilliant. I mean, Friend Mark of the show, Gates Mark Gates. Yep. is just brilliant in it. Um, so that's not my recommendation. My recommendation is Masters of Horror. Oh, mm. So I've been watching that this week. I have no idea how I didn't know about this before. It's sort of two seasons, 90s. The concept and all the special effects are by Greg Nicotero, now of... The Walking Dead fame, um, and it includes episodes, each one of which is based on a story by Stephen King mm. or, you know, H.P. Um, Lovecraft or whatever, directed by people like, and I'm reading here, Toby Hooper, Dario Argento, Joe Dante, John Landis, John Carpenter, you know. Oh, yeah. mm. um, I mean, some of it is dated and a bit twee, but all of it is really quite unusual and innovative and stuff you've never seen before. Just brilliant switch-off stuff. The problem is it's not available anywhere. So you're either, <laughs> oh, in, the, <laughs> you're either in the universe of dodgy downloads or you do what I do, you go on eBay, and actually you can pick up, like, the DVDs for a couple of quid. Sounds good. Get on eBay. Well, my uh, escape route's obviously trying to tear my mind away from the wonderful spectacle of Liverpool beating Chelsea in the Carabao Cup final, which filled my heart and my soul and made me a little bit teary because will it be the last thing Jürgen wins? No, it won't. It will not. Uh, my other, other escape route is Criminal Record with Peter Capaldi and Kush Jumbo on Apple TV+. Plus. I love Kush. And she's I love brilliant. She's, a, she's, she's, she's fantastic. Uh, a great crime procedural um, set in East London involving bent coppers, a miscarriage of justice. Really beautifully acted. Obviously, it's Capaldi and Kush Jumbo. Personally, I liked it because it's all shot around where I live. <laughs> here's all the main coppers sitting in the cafes that I go so oh look yeah. there they're driving through Dalston Junction with the I blues saw and a trailer on. for it and I found it really difficult to adjust my head to Chris Jumbo being English <laughs> and even though she's actually English yes yeah. but you know having seen her for so long in the 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 end, the tail end of the good wife, and then the good fight, mm -hmm. where she does just such a perfect American accent. Mm -hmm. She's become American in my head, and so that was quite weird shift. Well, she's totally brilliant in this, and mm -hmm. all eight episodes are on Apple TV Plus right now. And that's the end of the Tuesday edition of Oh God, What Now? Thank you, Alex. 
My pleasure. And thank you, Marie. Thank you. Uh, as I said earlier in the show, we've got loads of new Patreon backers for which we are profoundly grateful. You are the reason we are still going. And listeners, if you're not yet a backer, then please do consider it. We know money's tight right now, but for less than the price of a half of Metropolitan Elite no-alcohol craft beer, you can keep us on the digital airwaves. Just follow the link in the show notes to find out a bit more. And here are some thanks to those brand new backers. A huge virtual hug and much appreciation from me to Stuart Jones, Hugh Varily, Emma and Daphne Youngs. Hello and many thanks for your general support to Luc Godadin, Robert Douglas, Stephanie Woodhouse and Matthew Firth. And a massive thank you and welcome aboard from me to Shell Bell and Felicity King. And hello to a couple of former backers who have re-upped their support. It's always good to see the return of the prodigal patrons. Hello to John Hymas, returning for the second time. And, be still my beating hearts, Matt Smith, have you regenerated? Oh God, what now? We'll be back on Thursday for our backers and Friday morning for everybody else. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Oh God, what now? Was presented by Andrew Harrison with Alex Andreu and Marie LeConte. It was produced by Chris Jones and edited by Robin Lieber. With art by Jim Parrott and video production by Kieran Leslie. Managing editor is Jacob Jarvis, group editor Andrew Harrison, and Oh God, What Now? is a Podmasters production. <laughs>